Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Trump in the witness stand today in a $250 million fraud case that he's already lost, in which the judge repeatedly told him to answer questions and not make political speeches, at one point imploring his counsels to rein in their client. Joining us to reconcile the exposure of Trump as a business fraud and a make-believe billionaire with the latest New York Times poll that has Trump ahead in five of the six key swing states is Dennis Aftergut, a former federal prosecutor and chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco who has won cases of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. He currently serves as counsel to lawyers defending American democracy, and we will discuss his article at CNN, Why Trump is So Ill-Prepared for His Testimony Today. Then we'll examine the possibility of an end to the agony in Gaza with an expert on Palestinian issues who was an advisor to the Palestinian delegation to the Madrid and Washington Arab-Israeli peace negotiations from October 1991 till June of 1993. Rashid Halidi, who is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University, he's the co-editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies and was president of the Middle East Studies Association and an advisor to the Palestinian delegation to the Madrid and Washington Arab-Israeli peace negotiations in October of 1991 until June of 1993. His books include The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917-2017, to 2017, Brokers of Deceit, How the U.S. Has Undermined Peace in the Middle East, and The Iron Cage, The Story of the Palestinian Struggle for Statehood. We will discuss how peace emerged out of the 1973 war with the Camp David Accords, but with an Israeli public so incensed by the brutality of the Hamas butchery of women and children. This time around, it is less likely that Israelis will be open to a two-state solution, although that has never really been on the table. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency now that we have a fundamentalist Christian theocrat in charge of the People's House, as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, election deniers, and armed and angry cult followers threaten to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judiciary. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. Please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org donate or at our foundation publictruthmedia.org so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism, wrapped in the flag and carrying a Bible. And joining us now is Dennis Aftergaard, who's a former federal prosecutor and chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco, who has won cases of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. He currently serves as counsel to Lawyers Defending American Democracy, and he has an article at CNN, Why Trump is So Ill-Prepared for His Testimony Today. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dennis Aftergaard. Always a pleasure to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And of course, in the $250 million fraud trial that Donald Trump has already lost in New York, he did not equip himself well, at least according to court observers. Uh, He frustrated the judge who kept telling him to answer the questions and not make political speeches. The judge actually implored his lawyers to rein in their client to no avail. 
and yet he go, comes out of the courthouse, makes his usual martyrdom speech, and then storms off in a huff. But in the rest of the world, Dennis, according to the latest New York Times poll, Trump's ahead in five of the key swing states. So what's this disconnect all about? Why is this man on trial and is so clearly, well, we can get into who he is and why he's behaving the way he is, but in spite of four indictments, 91 charges, etc., he's going up in the polls. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to believe a lot more than the polls. The election results tomorrow, they're going to be better indicators of where the country is than polls, which always reflect the kinds of questions that are asked. This is a year out. The analysts that look at these things um, just look at them and say they keep people from doing what they need to do. That's what we need to focus on. That's what we need to control, not what these polls a year out say. Every special election, Ian, I think everyone, maybe it's 22 out of 23, since the 22 midterms has gone the democratic ways with the powerful driver being abortion. We've got a war going on in the Middle East that is very hard to make sense of. And I think Biden uh, is suffering from the fact that it's just very, very hard uh, to to understand where justice lies. And so I just I just wouldn't put a lot of faith in it. But in terms of Trump's case in New York, which is the one that he seems to be most concerned about, because he's been showing up in court when he wasn't wasn't really necessary. And today was the only time he really had to show up because he was in the witness stand. And on Wednesday, his daughter will also be in the witness stand. But I take it that this case in New York is more important to him psychologically than any other, right? Yes, I think both psychologically um, and because his brand has always been about his inflated net worth. And that's precisely what this case is puncturing a hole in. Uh, I think it was Michael Cohn said that Trump's entire ego and superego are tied up in his uh, standing in the fortune 400. Well, he got kicked off again on October 3rd, and that's largely because this case is proving that his net worth is so inflated, like his sense of himself. Well, that has been pretty clear from, well, at least in terms of his recent political life. I mean, (laughs) you recall back in 2016, in November, when he was three million short in the popular vote, but managed to squeak by in the Electoral College, he still insisted that he'd won the popular vote. He can't accept any kind of defeat and blamed it on, what, five million invisible Mexicans. And then on his inauguration day, 
He insisted that he had a bigger crowd than he did when he had a, an incredibly small crowd compared to Obama. And I had guess, he, I mean, this is a pattern here, isn't it? This is yeah. a guy yeah, who I, can't say, accept reality but imposes his own reality. Yeah. I guess you could say, Ian, and I'm not sure he was talking, I'm not sure this uh, applies only to hands, uh, but I think as to Trump, you could say, size seems to matter. <laughs> hey, uh, Ian, you know, one more thing. Um, I'm old enough to remember something else about the Fortune 400 that Trump got kicked off of. He got kicked off, I think, in 1984, too, um, when they discovered that uh, he had, you know, that his his net worth had absolutely, it was about $5 million, not $100 million that you needed then. And Ian, you remember in 1984, he uh, he called up Forbes, uh, claiming to be John Barron, spelled B-A-R-R-O-N, as as in Forbes contributor. Uh, I'm sorry, competitor of Forbes magazine, uh, claiming that he was an officer in the Trump Foundation, and you know fabricating how much Trump's properties were all worth. And the reporter tracked it all down, and that was when he got kicked off of the Forbes one, uh, 400 the first time. So this, his image is all made up, and this case goes straight to the heart of it, and it's part of his political persona, as you say. He 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 has given up on this case. He's given up, and I can tell you why. But um, he's given up. All he really cares about is his run for re-election. If he gets re-elected, not only will he have his Justice Department cave on all the criminal cases, but he will figure out how to stiff New York State and the judge and the people of New York. You know, if he's reelected president of the United States, that's what matters to him. And this case, all he wanted to do was to puff up his self-image uh, on the witness stand. That's why he was all over the map today. Well, he's also doing fundraising. And again, the whole theater is to be the martyr. Uh, and to say it's all election interference and to feed the base. And then you, now I go back to the New York Times polls. It seems to be working. So uh, at the end of the day, is there something terribly wrong with the American people? Can't they see what's obvious? Uh, I've got I just have a lot more faith in um, because when it comes election time, just like in the midterms, just like every election since people have shown up. There are reasons people are feeling discouraged now. It's a year away from the election. Uh, and and yeah, you and I see through it. Maybe people answering polls don't. I can't explain it all. But, uh, you know, I live by this mantra, Ian. It's the Stockdale paradox. I may have said it before on your show. On one hand, face the brutal facts. And the brutal fact is this man is a totalitarian preparing for retaliation against his enemies if he's reelected. And at the same time, you're facing the brutal facts. You have to keep the faith. You have to keep working because you cannot wring your hands and roll up your sleeves at the same time. And we need people to participate. He can be defeated. Well, the in terms of brutal facts and getting them somehow to the American people, uh, 
there was an article uh, last week in the New York Times that was innocuously titled, Trump allies want a new style of lawyer if he returns to power. And they ha- this was an article done by their A-team with two Pulitzer Prize winners, warning readers of the New York Times that if Donald Trump is returned to the White House in 2025, he's already groomed a new team of extremist government lawyers who would be more loyal to their dear leader than to the rule of law and could help Trump install a brand of American fascism. And as I say, the heading sort of toned it down, which leads me to wonder why it is that the press can't use the F word. Why are they so afraid of telling it as it is? Uh, it's, it's really a good question. I think that they, they probably were tested, Ian, and it probably still turns people off and they're not willing to lead. They're following their market. And it's understandable. Uh, just, you know, the news market is so economically fraught. So uh, I, I can't explain all those things. I'm going to tell you that is one of the brutal facts that he is going to have those kinds of lawyers. He is going to be retaliatory and worse if he gets elected. Those are the reasons we cannot allow him to be reelected. There is not one thing that's surprising about that story or another one like it in the Washington Post, maybe today or yesterday. The man does learn. Lawyers did, were the ones who, for the most part, stood up to him. And his the rule of law is standing up to the ones who were ena- uh, enabling him. John Eastman is has been preliminarily found to be in violation of the California uh, rules of professional conduct. That, that conclusion is going to be finalized later this month. Um, so the rule of law has held those lawyers who helped him before or is holding them to account. But Trump is going to find the ones he always is. Whatever Trump touches dies, as Rick Wilson's book title from 2018 put it, and he will find the ones who are corruptible. And it will be bad. And people should recognize that and keep it from happening. Well, as a member of the press, I I take it personally because he's already said we're the enemies of the people. I just don't understand why the mainstream media doesn't get it, that he wants to shut down the press like every other dictator. He wants to have essentially a public relations operation going. That was what was on trial in New York, where he was facing the reality of the fact that he is a fraud uh, and that his whole edifice is a fraud. And remember, it was Mitt Romney back in 2016 who warned the American people. And Mitt Romney was the former Republican frontrunner and standard bearer as their presidential candidate. And somehow... Mitt Romney saying, you know, anything that Donald Trump says and promises, it's about as worth as much as a diploma from Trump University. He's laid it out. And look what happened. The guy got elected. Yes. So yes. this well, is why not, I'm alarmed you know, and I just don't understand why. Well, uh, in the brutal facts, the brutal facts are that we should be alarmed and we should do things about it. But we also need to keep faith 
and keep working because 2022 and the election since have showed us that people have understood. And when it comes to the voting booth, they have done the right things. You got to remember, Ian, before the midterms, remember, it was going to be the giant red wave over the House. And in virtually every contested uh, competitive race, Republican election deniers lost. So um, you're right to be alarmed. You're right to be concerned. The facts are brutal about who this guy is. And you're absolutely right. He's a fascist. We need to keep him from the reins of power. And I don't want to keep repeating it, uh, Dennis, but (laughs) according to the latest poll, (laughs) he's ahead in five of the six key swing states. Uh, That just means we have to work harder. I get it. No, no. But just in terms of his testimony at the trial in New York, which, again, he's already been found liable. So, in effect, you know, his goose is already cooked. It's just a question of how much the penalties will be. And again, you know, the reason he was there, he's been there, is it because of this is obviously very important to him because it's it's his Achilles heel. It's his yep. whole edifice is going to crumble because it's all built on lies. And not only is it built on lies, by the way, Dennis, it's all built on Russian money that was KGB money laundered through the Brighton Beach gangsters who bought into Trump properties and into the casinos in Atlantic City and laundered their money. And then later on, you know, when Putin inherited the Trump account because Trump was basically bought by the KGB back in July the 4th of 1987 and after his first trip to Moscow where he uh, was invited over to build a Trump Tower and then they, they got him in a honey trap and then they've owned him ever since. And the first thing he did when he comes back to the United States is take out full-page ads in the... New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Boston Globe spouting Russian or Soviet propaganda at the time. And then when Putin inherits him, he launders you know, money through his oligarchs to keep Trump afloat. And that's the hidden story. So again, why is it that that story has been killed? I mean, Mueller barely scratched the surface of it. The Senate Intelligence Committee did a bipartisan report that didn't, that really did spell out how Putin helped elect Trump. And yet that story, the press doesn't want to touch anymore because they somehow think it's over, but it's not over. Well, as far as uh, the Russian crooks that uh, were all part of building up his real estate, it's very much like his cabinet and the people who work for him. I have four words for it, Ian. Only the best people. <laughs> and Ian, as all the best people, question, by the way, all the best people are the ones that he's been trashing, including Millie, who he wants to execute, along with Bill Barr yeah, and the others. <laughs> he only associates with the best people. Um, Ian, as far as the trial result, all that remains, you said, is to find out. We already know. We already know what uh, you know. What the judgment is going to be, Ian. You know how we know? Why? Trump has told us that he knows. And Trump has told us that he knows because he has given up on the trial. 
you don't, if you think you have a chance of at least cutting your losses and not being uh, done to the entire $250 million in compensation that uh, Letitia James is seeking for the people of the state of New York, if you think you have any chance of getting a lesser judgment, if you have, think you have any chance of keeping your business license, you don't get on the witness stand and call the judge a fraud. You don't, you don't say this trial is nothing but um, a witch hunt. He says these things in court. You can't do that if you think you're going to get anything better than a $250 million judgment. That's what it's going to be. Prediction. But do you think he was also trying to goad the judge into doing something that might help him with an appeal? Is that a strategy? Uh, yes, I do. And I think the judge made a mistake or two. And that was the reason why ultimately the judge just let him go uh, and just let him say, you know, make his spiel. When the judge, um, you know, the judge is going to find him completely uncredible as a witness. And when judges, trial judges do this, they are the ones who are present to see the demeanor of the witness. And they are the fact finder. And in this case, that's what Judge Engeron is going to do. And courts of appeal don't disturb that. They're not on the scene. So I think that Trump tried to goad him into that. I think that to a small degree he was successful, but ultimately it is not going to work. So the business certificate is, is the key, right? Losing that is everything for him, right? Well, you know, he's going to try to figure out different states or different places to go. But yes, yes, New York has been, um, that's been his flagship. Mm -hmm. And uh, it hurts. And that's mm -hmm. why I'm saying, you don't do the things that he did on the witness stand. Uh, if you think there's any chance of keeping your your flagship, even if you have another motive of puffing yourself up as a political candidate, it's too important. We started out there. Now we've you know, we've uh, returned there. His image as a business success in New York is too important for him. And that's why we know he's lost everything. Well, but, you know, he was this out-of-borough wannabe, uh, wanting to be, you know, to show the Manhattan elite that he was one of them, and they all laughed at him, and he was always a joke. Any, any New Yorker will tell you that Donald Trump was always considered a blowhard, idiot, cheesy Bulgarian. Nobody took him seriously. But guess what, Dennis? He became president of the United States. <laughs> I mean... God help us. How did that happen? Yeah, well, Ian, <laughs> fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, oh my God, <laughs> shame on me. <laughs> well, it's the worst thing you can do to a narcissist is give them the most powerful office on the planet. I'm with you there, Ian. So, you know, I, I actually also blame NBC, by the way, for this catastrophe along with the rest of the mainstream media, for giving him billions of dollars worth of free media in 2016. You recall the head of CBS said, Les Moonville said that Trump may not be good for America, but he's good for CBS. Yes. Well, NBC, through The Apprentice, 
built up this entire myth that he was a skillful businessman when he was a what four or five bankruptcies a complete yep. joke and as we know now from this trial in new york that all of his so-called billionaire status was totally yep. made up yep. so do you do you hold uh, nbc responsible for giving the people it's, out there that voted for him this illusion that he's this great businessman it's you know it's not that different from an earlier point you were making ian about why uh, the media continue to treat him with kid gloves. And that is, you know, the uh, corporate pursuit of the almighty dollar. They're not they're not going to be leaders. They're going to follow what they think the market wants. Uh, and so, yes, they made money on it and they created a monster. And Frankenstein may end up consuming them, as you said enemy of the people. Right. Well, I mean, I don't understand why the New York Times doesn't recognize that they'll be first on the chopping block. Yeah. Uh, well, well, I don't know, Ian. I, I'm not sure about that. I think you're pretty ranking pretty high up there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I, I'm certainly not as important as... <laughs> Well, you Give me remember, a break, Dennis. <laughs> he, may, he may feel a debt of gratitude to the New York Times. It's another <laughs> I don't take their polls all that seriously. Remember, yeah. remember, what about the emails? They pumped that story. They pumped the life out of it and almost pumped the life out of us. Yeah, the Hillary and also they they gave Trump a clean bill of health, you know, just a few days before the elections. Well, even though the reporters uh, said no, there's no question that he's connected to the Russians and that the Russians have helped him. But somehow the editor of the New York Times overrode it. And along with Comey, in his incredibly stupid public statements about Hillary Clinton, she claims that killed, that cost her the election, although she was a terrible candidate, obviously. Yeah, well, and Nate Silver seems to think that the uh, statistical data in the poll shows that, the way things turned uh, after Comey's second letter. But uh, on the point of the New York Times, I mean, if you think about how overplayed Hillary's emails were in, you know, the leading newspaper in the country, uh, and compared to, oh my God, the Mar-a-Lago case and the national security breaches there, I mean, it's really hard to understand. It's true that... He's gotten away with so much, it's just beyond believable. And again, I'm still trying to reconcile the the latest polls. And I hope you're right that somehow, I guess later next year, if it's a choice between Biden and Trump, and by the way, Trump's only three years younger. I don't know why there's, you know, so many of the, of the Democratic voters apparently are turning against Biden because they think he's too old. But Trump is 77 I don't know about his physical state. He's been living on on Big Macs. Uh, he seems to be over overweight, red faced, but mentally the guy you know should be in a straitjacket. So, yeah. do you think that Biden is the one that they think is too old and and unsound? Where it's so clear that Donald Trump is a basket case. Uh, yeah, you know that's. I'm probably not the expert on that. I'm going to say Trump. You know, that that uh, orange suntan and the makeup uh, and the hair quaff, all those things may matter to people. I don't know. 
I, I do want to say one thing about the poll. If you want to put, if you're going to put credit in it, uh, from what I've read, the cross tabs also say if he's convicted, uh, that's a six percent difference, and you know there's a very good chance in that in that uh, March fourth case before Judge Chutkin in D.C. that case is going to go. There's still some obstacles, so I, I can't say that's 100% certain. But if that case goes, uh, the man is going down. And those are all the reasons why just doing what you do, every individual doing what small amount they can, even if it's just talking to a neighbor, even if it's just trying to understand a neighbor and their viewpoint, Every small thing that people do to keep our democracy and keep our society together matters. The whole will be greater than the sum of the parts if everybody who cares acts. Well, I think you're right about Judge Chutkin. Hopefully that trial could be ended swiftly because it seems... They've got the evidence, thanks in part to the January 6th committee's investigation. The one down in Florida where he really should be nailed because it's so obvious that he was a complete disaster in terms of U.S. national security and bragging about secrets about submarines and stuff to some Australian billionaire who makes cardboard boxes for Amazon Um that case, it looks as if the judge, who's pretty much in Trump's pocket, is going to delay it. I mean, I don't see that one being resolved before the elections. What about you, Dennis? Oh, I, I'm in agreement with you. Uh, I was thinking today, I've written uh, three or four pieces about her before, but um, I was thinking it might be time to write another because, and 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 the frame is, um, you want a political hack on the bench? This is what you get. This is what you will get if Trump gets reelected. There's no question about that. And this is just shameful. It, there are now three or four pieces of evidence since she got overturned by the conservative 11th Circuit that show that, just as you said, Ian, right there, smack dab in the middle of Trump's watch fob pocket wow well the evidence is again is piling up and overwhelming and they've got one of the people that he told to erase the surveillance tapes is going to testify against him so if you had any other judge he'd be in big trouble but uh, yeah yes i guess the hope is that he's obviously lost already in new york and he will probably lose in the washington dc case with yes. judge chutkin and, so, and we, you know, in this life, we're stuck working with what we get. We don't control things. Right. He appointed her. She's the judge. And the only thing that we can ever do, Ian, is make the most of it. And the most, I believe, that we can make of it is to warn people in the way that you are doing about warning your audience. Warn people. This is what we will get. We will not get law. We will get favoritism and the enemies of Trump will be in a lot of trouble. If you want, if that's the America you want, then vote for Trump and get judges like Aileen Cannon. 
Dennis, I thank you for joining us. We were running out of time, but I appreciate you joining us here today. Uh, always an honor, Ian. Well, thank you, Dennis. And again, I've been speaking with Dennis Aftergut, who's a former federal prosecutor and the chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco, who has won cases of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. And he currently serves as counsel to lawyers defending American democracy. And he has an article at CNN, Why Trump is So Ill-Prepared for His Testimony Today. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the possibility of an end to the agony in Gaza with an expert on Palestinian issues who was an advisor to the Palestinian delegations to the Madrid and Washington Arab peace negotiations. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Rashid Halili, who is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. He is the co-editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies and was president of the Middle East Studies Association and an advisor to the Palestinian delegation to the Madrid and Washington Arab Israeli peace negotiations from October 1991 until June of 1993. His books include The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017, Brokers of Deceit, How the U.S. Has Undermined Peace in the Middle East, and The Iron Cage, The Story of the Palestinian Struggle for Statehood. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rashid Halidi. Thanks for having me. So I was just reading a piece at CNN, Rashid, by a Jewish professor at Columbia saying he wouldn't let his children go to Columbia. Since you're a professor at Columbia University, is it a hotbed of anti-Semitism? Um, I think that um, a lot of people are conflating. The, the short answer is no. Uh, it is not a hotbed of anti-Semitism. But I think a lot of people are conflating um, the fact that many students and many faculty uh, at Columbia are supportive of Palestinian rights uh, with the real anti-Semitism that exists in this country and some of which has been exhibited on this campus. I don't think that this campus is a hotbed of anti-Semitism. It is, however, a campus where a few years ago a majority of students voted to have the university divest from companies that support the Israeli occupation. And I think that shows you the temper of a large part, at least of a, a, a voting majority of the student body a few years ago. Um, so no, I, and I think that the it is not a hotbed of anti-Semitism. Um, I think that the heightened emotions around what started on, on October 7th, in particular, the killing of so many uh, Israeli civilians um, has led to you know, an understandable concern on the part of some students. Um, but I think that the killing now of very large numbers of Palestinian civilians has also heightened emotion uh, on the other side. And um, we do see that, or we have seen that, um, certainly in the first couple of weeks of this war uh, on campus. Uh, I think things have calmed down a lot since then, but I'm sure feelings are still high 
um, among many students, some of whom have family in Israel, some of whom have family in Palestine or have other connections uh, to uh, this part of the world. Well, already the death toll for Palestinians in Gaza has passed 10,000, and the Israeli military now have surrounded Gaza City, and the death toll will clearly increase. So at this point, you've got not just students at Columbia, but governments around the world pulling out their um, their diplomatic delegations. The entire South African delegation has um, moved out of Israel in protest. So is it another example of the difference between the way that the West sees thing and the way that the glo- so-called Global South sees thing, which, you know, vis-a-vis Ukraine, but is it also happening in Israel? Well, I, I would say that certainly the Global South, which is to say the world. I mean, when we talk about India and China, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Pakistan, uh, Nigeria, uh, Congo, Brazil, we're talking about the world, Latin America, Africa, all of Asia, they're, they're the world. Um, Western Europe, the United States and the white settler colonies are a tiny fraction of the world. They certainly see things differently than some Western governments do. But I would suggest that even in Western countries, you see humongous demonstrations in support of Palestine or against the killing of Palestinians in London, in Montreal, in cities across Europe and the United States, such that I wouldn't say the United States in terms of the American people are necessarily following the lead of their government. And there are polls that show that's the case, that there's that there's strong support for a ceasefire among the majority of Americans, for example. And that's that's diametrically opposed to the policy of the Biden administration and the Israeli government, which is that Israel should be allowed to continue to its military operations with the with the constant killing of very large numbers of Palestinian civilians, which is a part of that operation indefinitely. Uh, most people in this, even in the West, so-called, uh, I think, or many people at least in the West, s- certainly don't approve of that, don't agree with that. I think a majority of Americans don't agree with that, according to the polling I've seen. So Western governments, or the United States and a few other Western governments, are in one place, and many other people, including most of the rest of the world, are, are in a different place. So do you see any change in the current trajectory? Israel seems determined to wipe out Hamas and... uh, That's an unrealizable goal, uh, Ian. Uh, Hamas, first of all, is, it has a a military wing, and it may or may not be possible for Israel to defeat that military wing. At what cost? Only God knows. I mean, how many more thousands of people will be killed before that aim can be achieved, if it can be? But it is a political organization. It's it's an ideology. It has has, uh, supporters among Palestinians. It's it's not a majority party. They didn't even win a majority in the 2006 election. They won a plurality. Um, but they are, they're, they're, it's a widespread political, social, religious organization with this powerful military wing. So destroying Hamas is, is physically impossible unless you destroy a third or a quarter or whatever it is of the Palestinian people. Well, there's a lot of reporting uh, lately that uh, Netanyahu and the religious right in Israel, in effect, encouraged Hamas. And how much do you see this as as a problem between secular government and religious-based government? Because you've got 
the religious nationalists in Israel running roughshod over Palestinians in the West Bank. And the most absurd thing is happening now, apparently, that Smotrich, the finance minister, is at war with the defense minister because Smotrich wants to cut off funds to the West Bank. Right. And, the, and the the defense minister is saying, that's crazy. You know, things right. are already a tinderbox there. You're just going to inflame it even further. Right. So it just shows you how, you know, I have the same problem with the new Speaker of the House in the United States. Once you get into religion and secular influences are overwhelmed, there's a massive danger. That, you know, the history of the world is, is awash with blood from religious wars. I mean, sadly, that is a, a, a severe problem in Israel. I, I think that the ideology that you're talking about goes beyond uh, religious nationalists. Um, unfortunately, it, it's penetrated the Likud party and many other parts of Israeli political spectrum. Um, the idea that you don't really need to pay any attention to the Palestinians, that they will be, can be forced to accept their second class status and that they are not entitled to national self-determination uh, or, or equal rights. That is not just a religious nationalist position in Israel and the extreme right champions in a, in a, in a genocidal way in an almost genocidal way. Um, but other other elements in the political spectrum do so as well. I think, you know, religious nationalism is not only an Israeli problem. We have it in the Arab world. It's often demonized. The, the way in which uh, political parties like the Muslim Brotherhood are treated in some Arab countries probably is, is, uh, is ex extraordinarily excessive. But um, at, at the end of the spectrum, it is a problem, I think, all, all over. If you, if you define this conflict in religious terms, it's very hard to see how you, how you find a compromise. Um, it's, it's, it has to, I think, be defined in other terms. I think it has to be defined, obviously, in terms of nationalism, but also in terms of settler colonialism. You have to go back to how the state of Israel was established, how you created a Jewish state in a majority Arab country. Well, you did it via ethnic cleansing. You couldn't do it any other way. It was not possible. Only a third of the population of Palestine, uh, Jewish population composed only a third of the population of Palestine in 1948. To create a majority Jewish state, you had to expel people. And that's, the, that's, the, that's where this thing starts. And it's that ideology that is a real problem. Religious nationalism just takes it a step further away from being soluble. You can solve a settler colonial problem through various forms of compromise. I think Northern Ireland and Ireland show one possible avenue towards that. South Africa shows another possible avenue. A religious conflict, I don't think, is so easily solved. So are you talking about original sin? I mean, is there any, you worked on one of the attempts to bring about a two-state solution. And there actually, I think people have forgotten that after Oslo, there was a functioning two-state solution uh, for a while. Israelis were shopping in Bethlehem and gambling at the casino in Hebron. And after Rabin was killed and um, murdered, shot in the back, and Netanyahu rose to power, the project has been to undo what little progress has been done and have a peace process, which is all about process but not about peace. So, well, I, think, an, I think you're right about, about the so-called peace process. It essentially was intended to freeze the status quo. And it did. Um, I, I would also ar argue with your with your portrayal of what Rabin and, and Oslo 
intended to do. Rabin made major shifts in Israel's policies. Up until that point, Israeli leaders like Golda Meir denied that there was any such thing as a Palestinian people. Uh, Rabin uh, changed that policy and he said, yes, there is a Palestinian people. He said that the PLO represents them, another major change. And he said he's willing to negotiate with them and he did, another major change. But he never accepted the right of the Palestinians to sovereign statehood. And he said that in his last speech before the Israeli Knesset, a, a few weeks before he was murdered, um, said it will be what we're offering the Palestinians is, quote, less than a state. That's what he said in his last you know, major speech. Um, moreover, he said Israel will maintain security control over the Jordan River Valley. What does that mean? This is not going to be a sovereign entity. This will be an entity under some form of Israeli control. So even Rabin, and I would argue later Barak in the negotiations at Camp David in 2000, and later uh, Ehud Olmert, another Israeli prime minister, all of them were willing to negotiate. I mean, by contrast with Netanyahu, who longest serving Israeli prime minister, he's dominated Israeli politics for the last couple of decades. Um, he was not really willing to negotiate. He is not. He doesn't concede that the Palestinians are people. He may say he does, but he doesn't really. He's not willing to even accept uh, uh, the things that Rabin and Barak and, and uh, Olmert were willing to accept. But none of them have been willing to accept a fully sovereign, contiguous Palestinian state. And that's, that's where things got stuck. They got stuck in the 1990s, uh, not just after Rabin was assassinated, even before. The walls that we are seeing, the, the checkpoints that we're seeing, the complete restriction of movement, the, the, the confinement of Palestinians in enclaves all over the West Bank, as well as in the Gaza Strip. This starts during the heyday of the so-called Oslo process from 1993 until 2000. Palestinian GDP per capita goes down in that period. Palestinian freedom of movement is gravely restricted. Palestinians are suddenly uh, understanding that this process is intended from the Israeli side and the American side to basically not change the status quo. Settlements expand during this entire period. And the Palestinians are significantly worse off six or seven years after Oslo, which was supposed to be an interim solution that the Palestinian Authority was supposed to be dissolved by the end of the 1990s. And here it is still there, an interim authority. So I was involved in the negotiations in, in Madrid and Oslo, and I, and most, I think, of the members of the delegation that were there and advisors like myself felt at the end of those two years of negotiation that we'd reached a dead end, that this was not a process that was going to lead to statehood and sovereignty and an end of occupation and a rolling back of settlement. It was a process that was designed to preserve occupation, preserve uh, the settlements and deny the Palestinians statehood, give them some form of autonomy under Israeli control. That's what Arafat and the PLO signed on to, assuming they could get a better deal. They did. So given that the Israeli right and Netanyahu have never really enunciated their end game, except it seems based upon the idea that somehow or other the Palestinians will go away, that they'll sort of slink off into Jordan or Gaza or somewhere else. And that seems to be the current thinking about Gaza, that somehow or other these people will leave and they'll, Israel will just basically turn to the UN and say, you know, it's yours, and whoever wants to reconstruct it, you're welcome to it. You're welcome to the rubble. So what kind of two-state constituency is there left anywhere 
Biden's talking about a two-state solution. There are, I talked to a lot of, of, of Israeli leftists and progressives who also talk about a two-state solution. But since you've just told us that the whole thing has been a bit of a, a lie or a myth, what is there a constituency left for an alternative to the Netanyahu vision, which, again, has never been fully enunciated but appears to be based upon the fantasy that somehow the Palestinian people will disappear. Well, I mean, I think the two-state solution is coming back. It was put into mothballs by Netanyahu. Um, it's been a constant talking point for the United States, Western Europe, and the international community. And I would say to anybody who talks about a two-state solution, before you can tell me anything about a two-state solution, I want to I have it explained how three quarters of a million Israeli settlers are going to be moved. Voters, Israeli voters are going to be moved from the occupied territories where they have been systematically planted in order to prevent a Palestinian state for 56 years. I don't see how that happens, uh, frankly. And I challenge anyone who talks about a Palestinian state if they mean a sovereign contiguous Palestinian state and not a series of enclaves under Israeli control, which is what you have now. Uh, with uh, Israeli settlers and the military controlling 60 or 65 percent of the West Bank and, and Jerusalem. I, I challenge anybody who talks about a, a two-state solution to deal with that and deal with the question of Israeli control and occupation. If Israel controls from without, as it does Gaza today, uh, the Palestinians, or as it would under what Rabin and other Israeli leaders were saying, where they say we control the Jordan River Valley, then it's not a state. You're not talking about a state. You're talking about a Bantustan. You're talking about a an autonomous zone, you're talking about a region under Israeli sovereignty um, with some form of, of, of municipal self-government. Um, I, I challenge anybody who talks about a state to talk about when does the occupation end. I talk about, I challenge anybody to say when, how and when are you going to remove these settlers. You don't do that and you're not talking about a contiguous state. You're talking about the eight or nine zones to which Palestinians are restricted today in the West Bank. Closed down, you can't move from Ramallah to Nablus, you can't move from Nablus to Janine, you can't move from Hebron uh, to, to Ramallah today, uh, since the Israelis control everything in between, and they've decided for the duration of the war to close it down. Uh, that's not a state, and nothing like that is a state. And so, I mean, I, I, I worked for two years together with all these uh, other dedicated people in the Palestinian delegation and the advisors to try and achieve something better than that, and we failed, and Arafat miserably failed uh, at Oslo, or his, his, his delegates at Oslo miserably failed. So, I mean, I, I frankly think that Israel has cemented over and bulldozed a state for 56 years, and it, it'd be very hard to see how it could be revived. I challenge people to do it. If the United States can start saying occupation ends by date certain, statehood is established a year later, uh, these settlements are removed, um, Palestinians will have control over their own borders. I, that might, it's not a very just solution because you still have the problem of refugees, you still have the problem of property, you still have the problem that, is, uh, that Israel takes up 78% of the Palestine that it controlled before the June war. That, those are not, that's not a just solution, but it might, it, 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 I'd love to see somebody show me how it could, even that could take place. And obviously, there's no plan or possibility of, of Gaza and the West Bank being in any way joined. So do you think, as some people have suggested, that after the Yom Kippur War, you had the Camp David Accords and Israel gave up the Sinai 
in exchange for a treaty with Egypt that's a little frayed at the moment, it would seem. Um, but nevertheless, it's held. The suggestion is that this war may provoke a similar effort at peace. Do you see that as a possibility, well, Rashid? Two things. I think, firstly, you'd have to have a, 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 a real change in Israel along the lines of what happened after the 73 war and along the lines of what happened actually after the first intifada in the late 1980s. In both cases, Israeli elites and Israeli public opinion shifted in their view. Before um, the 73 war, Israeli leaders Golda Meir, Moshe Dayan, and so forth said, we'd rather have Sinai than peace. You know, peace without Sinai. Uh, sorry, Sinai without peace is better than peace without Sinai, was the slogan. And that changed. Israeli public opinion shifted um, in the 70s after, after the, after the uh, October war. Um, Israeli public opinion shifted after the first intifada. Sometime in the late 1980s, a lot of Israelis and Israeli elites, as represented by Rabin, realized that the, they couldn't maintain the occupation as they had, that it was not a, a cost-free occupation, that it wasn't a benign occupation, that the Palestinians wouldn't stand for it. They shifted not enough, in my view, but they did shift. There's no question. I just mentioned how many changes in Israeli policy uh, Rabin, Rabin uh, undertook. I don't know, given in particular the, in the very high Israeli civilian death toll. I, I think this is the highest Israeli civilian death toll since 1948 and maybe even since before that. Um, given the incredible shock in Israel and, and the anger and the rage that resulted from that and from the the, the capture of civilian hostages uh, by Hamas. I'm not sure that you're going to have the same kind of shift as took place uh, after the uh, first intifada in the late 80s or after the 73 war. And that that's a prerequisite. I mean, Israelis have to change their whole view of this. If they think that more violence will give them security, they're, they're living in a fantasy land. More violence has only gotten them more violence. More occupation will get them more violence. More land seizure will get them more violence. More siege of Gaza will get them more violence. It's inevitable. It's, it's going to happen. I'm not saying I want it. I'm not saying I'm, I'm not even predicting it. It's, it's like the sun rises in the east. You hold people down the way they've been holding the Palestinians down. And they're going to resist. Um, whether they do so in a way that's appropriate or inappropriate is another matter. Um, but I, I think that it would require an enormous shift on the part of Israelis and of the Israeli elites, the security elites. Some of them are moving in that direction. I mean, careful reading of the Israeli press shows that some very far-sighted Israelis are saying, we can't continue the way, we, the way we've been going before this war. Um, but I'm not sure that they're going to be able to overcome the, 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 what I think still is a majority, which just says more of the same, more of the same, more of the same. Well, Rashid Halidi, I thank you so much for joining us here today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Rashid Halidi, who is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. He is the co-editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies and was president of the Middle East Studies Association and an advisor to the Palestinian delegation to the Madrid and Washington Arab-Israeli peace negotiations from October 1991 to June of 1993. His books include A Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017, Brokers of Deceit, How the U.S. Has Undermined Peace in the Middle East, and The Iron Cage, The Story of the Palestinian Struggle for Statehood. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.